Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. I am so, so pleased today to welcome uh, my friend and uh, on our podcast today. So I'm so, so excited, Helena Goto. And I have to tell you, let me tell you a few things about her. She's an adjunct professor at the University of Southern California, and she teaches um, alternative dispute resolution. She has an MBA from USC. She has a master's in, in dispute resolution from Pepperdine. She is an employee success coach, a mediator. She handles, she teaches conflict management, and she has her own company that does that does that exactly that conflict management and dispute resolution. And she is a wonderful mother of three gorgeous children. And have I covered it all? Well, uh, guinea pig uh, owner rabbit. I got you forgot the guinea pigs, the rabbits, the dogs, and the cat. But other than that, I think you pretty much cover everything well thank you so so much for being here um i love having guests like you on because they give so much insight especially for our future leaders on how to handle conflict management in all organizations but first i'm going to go over some stuff about your life this is the good part for me i get to hear some good things about your life and um so tell me where you were born and raised so first of all, I just got to say for those people that are listening, because I have listened to your podcast before and there's this, all this motivational woo music for a minute. And then it's like, hey, and here's Martin. And I'm always like, wow, that's who knew there are fancy visuals going on for that whole minute. So those of you who just listen and don't watch this, that's what's happening. Yeah, I know. I try to get that music cut down, but uh, yeah, there's a there's actually a video portion of this. But so it's now good. I get to I get to delve into your life here. So okay, um, okay. So I'm from New Zealand originally, uh, born and bred. I was uh, born, I was brought up in uh, the North Island in a little town called Hamilton, otherwise known as Hamel Hole, Hammer Vegas. Uh, it's not fancy, people. I know it sounds glamorous coming from New Zealand, but no. So was the town <laughs> was the town big or small or and what was the community like? So there were about a hundred thousand people in Hamilton when I was um, uh, growing up. And it sadly, the reason why people describe it like that is because you know, New Zealand is an island. It's like this beautiful island and then there's this little town in the middle of this island called hamilton uh where they you know it's a lot of dairy farming and uh it's really muggy and uh, there's no beach right <laughs> there's a little lake but uh it's just very country it's uh incredibly low-key and uh country <laughs> that's all i could say and what was it like growing up there okay uh you're very serious martin um okay it was well i felt like i was living this ideal life i didn't really know much else because we didn't have the internet when i was growing up uh don't tell my children they think i'm 27 um but and we didn't have much television and we had two stations one of them was the news and the other one was um you know we'd have dukes of hazard happy days uh dallas so that that was all we knew of america and um and not much else of the rest of the world and um coming up in a in a family that we didn't have money to travel i mean travel was so expensive because you really are at the bottom of the world so going anywhere costs a lot of money um and so 
you're just incredibly isolated and uh, it feel it, that was my whole world, which I think is not dissimilar to other people. They experience wherever you grow up, it's, you feel like that's the universe. Uh, but it was definitely shocking when I uh, left my little universe and realized what a big world there was out there. Do you have any brothers and sisters and what was your relationship like with your parents? So I have a wonderful older brother called Blair and uh, he is married to an incredible woman called Kate and they have two boys. Uh, I have three boys. So between the my brother and I, we have, well, my mother and my dad, they got five grandsons within the space of three and a half years. They didn't think we were going to have kids and then suddenly, damn, damn, we just... Um, pop them out so well Kate and I did obviously <laughs> Blair didn't have that much to do with it uh and then um he is still in New Zealand uh and we my brother and I are incredibly different uh we are like together we make a whole person um so that was interesting and I'm getting to experience having three boys right now that are all very close and very similar uh, how chaotic that was and I'm, and I realized how my childhood wasn't really chaotic because my brother and I just kind of did our own thing uh, and then my parents I had a great relationship um, with my parents and my grandparents who lived my mum's parents lived um, maybe half a mile down this little country road and I'd get on my little bike and I'd bike down there and I used to be able to climb and fit in the letterbox. So I'd like jump out when my mom would come to pick me up. Um, and they, it was, they lived on a beautiful farm. And I was very, very close to my grandparents. Um, but my parents, my relationship with my parents really um, shifted dramatically around the age of 12 when they, when they got divorced um, or separated because my dad kind of disappeared. And then my mom, um, it moved in with her boyfriend eventually and so that just really really changed the dynamic and what do you what do you, what do you mean by that you said it was difficult for you so what do you mean by that what kind of stuff were you going through and what kind of got you through that you and your, for you and your brother well my brother internalized everything and i externalized everything so i became very angry and um uh my dad it's it's you know i hate it when you people have these stories it's like it's just a story right and i'd like to rewrite the story i'd like it to be different um uh, but the truth is my mum's boyfriend was very quiet and i don't even i think he probably didn't like me but i think it was probably worse than that he he kind of treated me like like i was not even worth having an opinion about and he had two old, two sons who were older than me and they were the bullies of the school. They actually bullied my brother when he was young, like before we moved in with them because we were all in the same little, we'd known them for a long time. Uh, so that was, that was a very um, sad uh, situation for me. Um, and it, I, I don't think it's unusual. I think a lot of people, it's just very hard to have a blended family. I just think it is incredibly hard. Uh, and also my parents were going through this back, um, you know, the late 80s. And they really, uh, there wasn't anything written on it, particularly there was very little support for men. I think my dad was like, okay, so you take the kids and I'll just go and, you know, get on with my life. 
so I think that the way um, divorce was dealt with is, is, is there was just not a lot of support for my parents, not a lot of um, role models on how to do it well. And um, it's, it's, a very difficult, it's a very difficult process for anyone to go through. And then how how are your grades during that time? Were you able to were, were you able to, were you able to focus were you able to focus on school and what were your kind of outlets for all that? Well, I started drinking. I started I I I, I, I smoke and I ate marijuana. Like we used to make cakes because I was a great baker. So I put on a bunch of pounds because I'm big old like <laughs> just got this fantastic pie. Um, and anyway, so. I really went off the rails. I and this was at this was at twelve years old. Well, at thirteen. So at thirteen. So they broke up at the end of so, the end of what we would call middle school in New Zealand before you go into high school, right? So I was twelve, going on thirteen. Uh, terrible time for a girl, um, and everything just was quite dramatically shifted. Um, you know, I had ponies, and my ponies got picked up by a big truck, and probably went to the dog food factory, you know, and because it all happened very quickly. And then uh, we lived in a caravan, like a trailer at my grandma's house for about three months until we found this little place in town. Um, and and um, I got really bullied at that point. At around 13, there was a girl called, I shouldn't name her because she has apologized to me on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to name her but go ahead there was a girl and she was the queen you know she was the kid girl you know the head the popular girl and she god she was mean and and and, and so were so was the so was the gang um and i just it, it was awful um i really we don't need to talk about that much because it's like <laughs> So, 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 so let me let me ask you this question though, Helena. During that time, you said you were bullied, and I know that's like a big issue for a lot of people. And um, I mean, I'll, we'll go back to the, that part of your family, but I'm wondering when you look back on that time, what advice do you give kids or people in your family that are facing that kind of bullying situation? When you look back on this, because you've experienced it when you were younger. I think what I would say to 13-year-old Helena is that you'll find your people. You know, these aren't your people. And just because you don't fit in here doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. You're a fabulous human being with unique, you know, you're unique and you will find your people. And it's just, it's not your fault that you were born into an environment that you don't fit, right? And and so I do have so much uh, compassion for anyone who isn't mainstream. And 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 so mainstream for me in New Zealand is is very it's very low key. Everyone like everyone's cool. Everyone gets along. And I'm a lot. My edges are sharper. I'm louder. I'm more. I'm very. You know. I'm a very energetic person. And um, one thing I'm sure we'll get to is when I first came to America, I, I arrived in New York City and I didn't, and this is, is a, probably an hour podcast in itself, but just that arrival, I had no idea, right? New Zealand is so small. I thought LA, I, was, I won a trip to LA 
And I was like, okay, well, I'll go to New York because I had zero comprehension that New York was like another seven hours away at that time. Anyway, um, and it was it was there for, the, for like six weeks, two months nearly. Um, and I literally cried every single day basically because out of pure relief, just absolute relief that I was – there was nothing wrong with me. I, I had no idea that my experience for those 24 years had been that I was I was a fish in a pond that the water didn't work for me. And I was I was struggling to survive. And then I arrived in New York City and energetically it was so intense. And people just thought I was the cutest little thing they'd ever seen because I'd never even met a New Zealander before because it was, you know, 98. And uh, they just either ignored me because that's New York and you just ignore everybody or they just thought I was this this weird little, well, funny little cute little thing with this funny little accent. And it was just such a relief to just not have all this negative like energy, be shh, calm down, be, be less, be, you know, like I feel like I'd been squashed for all these years and suddenly you know everything just everyone just got off me and just left me alone and I just god it was a relief I can and, feel it now as I'm talking about it I was like, and, <sighs> and what about what about your high school years and yeah. when you were going through those high school years did you process at all like what I want were you in survival mode or were you like you know what this is what I want to do when I grow up or did you have a vision of about where you wanted to go in high school I wanted to I, I I wanted to be an actor and I didn't know at the time I it took a little bit of therapy when I got here to America to find out that I just wasn't really seen who I am I wasn't seen uh and so wanting to be an actor was about wanting to be seen and uh I talk a, a lot about that you'll know you know from from my class in conflict like when people don't feel heard and don't feel seen they're just, they can't listen. You're just in this place of like, ah, agitation. Uh, and I think that that's where I was for many years. And and then after a while, I just didn't need to be seen anymore. And I had no, I had no, I hated acting. I mean, I, I loved acting. Like I love singing and dancing and all of that. But auditioning, the job of being an actor is is very different and and really horrible horrible god bless people that have it in them to be able to do it but oh it so was you, not for me <laughs> so so in so in high school you wanted to be an act you wanted to be an actress and um did you go to university directly after high school and how did that how did that work out for you because i know you your undergraduate degree was something totally different than what you're doing now um so, okay how yes. did that how did that transpire So my family were very much focused because my parents didn't have degrees. Nobody had been to university and they were very much of the school that you go to university, you get a degree and then you can go from there, but you must go to university. So even though I was, my plan was to travel, leave New Zealand, travel, um, be an actor, uh, I had to get a degree. So my thought was, how did, what's the kind of degree that will allow me to travel, will give me freedom? And I really could have done 
I was at that point where I loved everything. I loved biology and I loved physical education and math and English. And uh, I chose physical therapy because you walked away with something. You were a physical therapist. It wasn't like med school where you're a doctor and you've got to build your practice. Now I, 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 you know, I look back, whatever. So I did physiotherapy and, uh, and my plan was to do that and then just leave the country and be a physical therapist in England uh, because we have a, a, a European union thing. We can go over there for two years uh, and work. And I was going to do that. But what happened was I won a trip on the radio uh, to America, which wasn't even in my sights. But and was this, was that, was that after you completed your degree? Yes. Yeah. I and, 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 and what, yeah, what kind you have to tell you, what kind of radio show was this? How did this happen? Uh, it was like, just, it was like Ryan Seacrest in the morning, a new Auckland style. So I was living in the main city, not the capital, but the main city, the biggest city, which is Auckland. And I was living there and um, I'd started doing acting classes because I was so miserable as a physio. Oh God, it was not. It was not for me. There was, it was not my, uh, and so, and my teacher, Michael Sassiente, went to uh, the neighborhood playhouse in New York City. And so he talked a lot about that and he was teaching the Meisner technique. And I won this trip. And so suddenly I was like, hey, I've watched fame. I'm going to go to New York and go to drama school. And, uh, and so I went to the neighborhood playhouse um, for the summer and yeah so that's how and, and so that's how that all that all worked out um and just obviously like i said i loved it so how did you pay for that did they they paid for your flight and then and then did you did you when you arrived there how did you pay for your acting lessons and where did you live because you obviously you landed you're like what do i do now you have no friends in new york so i so my my dad had never done anything like basically never done anything for me after leaving my mom i'm not even going to go into the dirty de like the details of it but let's just say that there were no birthday presents there was no chris you know it just dad checked out i don't know why dad did this but i called him up and i said i've won a trip on the radio i want to go to acting school i need six thousand dollars and dad was like okay i i mean I, i'd already started to say yeah i know you're not what what and so he did that for me which was a really big deal um he knows how to get his roi right <laughs> so um what i didn't realize was that the exchange rate at the time was like 33 cents to the dollar so six thousand dollars is actually two thousand dollars uh and um not even and um so I, um, when I got to New York, I had nowhere to stay. Um, I thought that I would meet someone on the plane who would have me stay with them. I mean, I had zero idea, Martin, of what New York City was. I just, and I come from a country where, you know, you show up. People from New York City have gone to New Zealand, been picked up at the airport by my family. People that I've met, and I met one woman at a restaurant who wanted to go to New Zealand. I'm like, you should go. Here's my mum's phone number and my brother's phone number. She went and stayed at my brother. She worked on my mother's kiwi fruit orchard. She would drive. She they gave her a car to drive. I mean, <laughs> like she stayed with my family. And I didn't even know her. Uh, but so that's what I thought was going to be my experience, and it wasn't. So I arrived at drama school Monday morning 
after having you know a near-death experience thinking I was going to get shot in the street in New York I was running in the streets thinking I was going to be shot that's how terrified I was I found a YMCA and I, I stayed the night there but then I show up at drama school with my with my suitcase and everyone's like hi I'm Rachel from Texas and la, la, la. and I'm like hi I'm Helena I need somewhere to stay <laughs> everyone's like uh what no so I slept on uh floors I, I literally slept on floors there was one night I was no blankets in the middle of and, and by the way New York City middle of summer it was hot I was hot um I I didn't I ate bagels and um yeah it was it was something so, so like what, I said, I cried every day, but I loved it. So what was your breakthrough? Like, how do you transition? How did you get from New York to the West Coast? And how did you find the direction? So did you come to the West Coast and you want to do your acting still? So funny story. Um, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't get a job. I didn't know what to do, right? You, you go, when you come go somewhere new, you don't know, obviously, anybody, and it's very difficult to get work. Um, and I'd come from being a physical therapist, which was quite a, but that didn't mean anything. And so one of the, a guy in my, in, in my, um, in my uh, acting class said to me, oh, listen, my family owns strip clubs on the West Coast. There's a brand new strip club downtown, I know, in Chelsea, why don't I take you down there? And they have massage therapists and strip cups. Like they just stand behind the dancers and massage their shoulders and they get paid like 20 bucks a song. I'm like, what? I've never even been in a strip club. First of all, I didn't even know any of this stuff. And um, so he takes me down to the strip club called Privileges um, in Chelsea. And this, and I get called up to the, to the, to Junior's office and Junior throws me, a two-piece, like hot pants and a bra, and says, put these on and massage my shoulders. I mean, I'm just like, okay. I'm just, I said to my friend Anthony, I'm like, listen, if I don't come back in 15 minutes, get call 911. Anyway, so anyway, I massaged this guy. That was my first, that was my job interview. I got the job and I started working at Privileges. And um, I would make, I made some, and it was right before the crash that the um dot com crash like it was 2000 and there was people that these guys were just coming in throwing money around and it was a really crazy mind-blowing experience but after a few months i was like wow i'm really starting to hate humanity and uh this is the worst of women the worst of men it is not but I'd managed to save enough money to buy myself a little Plymouth Sundance, which I went to the Bronx. I got myself a Plymouth Sundance for $875, I think it was. And I got my cat, Simon, who had, I had this roommate. Oh, God, see, this is a really long story. We haven't even got there yet. We haven't even started on my actual life. But um, I had this girlfriend, Rachel. She had three cats. And she was living in, like, the hallway of my – we had this little studio in, in, in the East Village. And um, – and Simon, her cat, loved me. And so she let me keep Simon. So Simon and I drove across the States in my little red Plymouth Sundance with velour interior. And um, the car literally broke down as I drove into the park of the apartment that I found. And um, that was how I got to L.A. And I re the reason I went to L.A. just to get to your question was, yes, I still wanted to be an actor. Uh, and I realized that I New York was a really hard city. I was never going to be rich enough to live in anything but a shoebox 
and uh, it's you can be really poor. Well, when I lived there, you can be really poor in New York, right? You can walk everywhere, you can eat bagels, and you can live with three people in a box, which I did. But at some point, <laughs> that isn't fun anymore. Uh, and so I realized LA was a lot, you know, the quality of life when you don't have a lot of money is higher because of it being sunny all the time. So I came out here and uh, I started acting. I, I like started going to auditions. I did a bunch of stuff. Um, I made a film, which you I told you about the other day, um, because I was surrounded by people who didn't have any work, <laughs> like well, so, not work. So did you go out to auditions and were you working another job and did you start just going out on on calls or how did that work? And then, so when I was in New Zealand, there was a TV show called Xena and Hercules that was shot in Auckland, and so I was the physical therapist. Um, I'd done some work on set. I'd been in this band um, in one of the Hercule, uh, Hercules things, and I met Ted Raimi, who's like Sam Raimi's brother. And um, he heard his back on set, and I'm like, I'm a physical therapist. So I just became, it just was like this this door swung open, and I was like Hercules masseuse, and I was, you know, doing all, all that. And so when I came to um, L.A., I had some connections here, and so I reached out and um, and really started kind of mas well, massaging right and uh that just sort of led into what became a side hustle for a solid 10 years where i would just have a few really high-end clients that i would go on the movie set with them um or with their family on holiday I went to a private island in fiji once which was unbelievable um and so that was that, and I made a lot of money. To, like I made stupid money doing that, right? One hour and I'd make a lot of, I'd make good money. And then I was able to go and do other things like be a, be a production assistant on a, cause I very quickly learned I didn't want to be an actor because the the industry was horrific. I mean, two of my girlfriends are the Harvey, some of the Harvey Weinstein, you know, first accusers because that was, that's the industry, right? And that was pretty, pretty normal. Uh, and so I thought, you know what, I want to produce. And so that's when I started producing some things. So I produced a short film and then I produced that feature film. And then I realized that that was um, really hard work, producing the industry, being a woman in the industry. And I, and, um, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to go get my business degree and I'm going to set my, what I've been doing as a massage therapist I'm going to create that on-demand massage. And so I went to business school, went to USC, did my MBA to do that, came out. Um, how, how was that experience for you getting your MBA? Because now you kind of immersed yourself in the American culture. If you were to juxtapose the American culture with the culture you grew up in New Zealand, what do you think the difference is? Does, is there a different drive in the States? Or is it, it what is the mindset, you think? Well... There's a lot more nepotism, obviously, here. Um, gosh, it's such culturally just so different, USC Business School compared to Otago University Physiotherapy School. I mean, we were the bottom of the South Island. Rugby is king. There was a lot of beer. Uh, it's not fancy. It's just, it's, it's very, very different. 
Um, but what I thought was fascinating about USC was there was support for if you were uh, there were Indian students that had come. There were um, there were the Asian. There were like this was the, the Indian group of kids. There was the Asian group of kids. There was the young white male group of kids. There was the young female group of kids. There was the um, Americans, right? American privileged white group. America, you know, and then there was the um, the what do they call it? Um, the consortium, which was the students that were African-American of color, basically, and were supported from before school even started. They all got to know each other through the summer and they did all these prep classes and they went in and there was really nothing for me. Like there was no group that I fitted in. There was no zero support structure around me um, because I was, I was foreign. I was an immigrant but I was white and, um, and, and I didn't come from, you know, like I, I'm the first one in my family to get a degree, let alone get master's degree. And so I didn't know you need, you should go to the professor and tell them you were struggling with this or go to office hours to get in with him. So when, you know, they would, whatever. Um, and it was a really hard um, process to, to, because also everybody I knew was in a completely different world. Like I was coming from the industry of these people that are just like partying. I was living in West Hollywood. I mean, it was just a completely different world. So uh, it took me a minute, but I managed to <laughs> managed to get through it. So what was the transition? You got your MBA, you, um, you went on, you, you got your master's in, um, in, in dispute resolution. So how did that transpire and what made you decide to go into that? So I think the transition comes from, um, I met my husband, June, he was in his last class of his MBA PM PM. And I met him at the beginning of my, the second semester, the, the second year of my MBA. And, um, he is Japanese from Japan came out when he was like 20 something. And, um, we met and after we got married five months after our first date and uh we in may we got married may 19th 2010 and we i got pregnant and we, we graduated from usc with our mbas on the 14th of may i think between the 14th and the 19th i got pregnant and the 19th of may we got married and so 10 months later so now I'm pregnant and I didn't know and it was just such a huge transition right <laughs> so I moved uh, we'd moved in together in Playa Vista which was not my my energetically good like the right vibe for us so we moved around a bit um had three children back to back and I guess what I decided was I wasn't going to run my business I was a I, would, I really didn't want to do massage anymore, right? I think my biggest lesson, I know I'm jumping around here, but I really bootstrapped. I've always been a bootstrapper. I've always been somebody that will just make it work, right? And so that's how I was approaching the business that I was setting up, which was um, Massage on Demand. And I realized, I look back now, and there was somebody who was doing a similar thing to me, uh, a company called Soothe. That guy got 
millions of dollars of investment money and had it all set up before I even you know went at it for me I'm like okay I had hired some massage therapists and I was going out and they were going out and I was sort of hustling and that just that hustle just became I just didn't feel confident because I didn't know how I was going to be as a pregnant woman and uh and so that just kind of faded away and I thought you know what I loved dispute resolution I love mediation I'm in this education zone. Let me go get another master's while I'm at it and uh, and go from there. So that's kind of what happened. I think it was a panic as well. Like you're about to have a baby. You're like, I don't know what's going to happen. Let me get another master's. So I sort of threw myself down that rabbit hole and um, did the entire thing, uh, except for I had one class to finish when I gave birth to Arthur. And I gave birth to him on Friday, and I was back in school on Monday finishing that. <laughs> doing, doing well, that let, let me ask you this. I want to give you some good questions here because I, I think that people will get a lot out of this now. Can you explain what alternative dispute resolution is, conflict management? Um, can you can you kind of talk about that a little bit, that space? Yeah, so I it's it's definitely evolving. Uh, alternative dispute resolu resolution is where you deal with disputes, conflict, outside of litigation so mediation where you have a neutral third party um, is one alternative dispute resolution process another one is arbitration uh, and another one is ombudsman so an ombuds is a terrible name for a practice where which is amazing practice that they have at universities and world bank and and the un and it basically is uh, external, neutral, third party who um, is confidential and is there to help you resolve conflict and problems and um, really like a sounding board. And so that's kind of the world of alternative dispute resolution. Uh, I transition more into very early dispute resolution. So you can have mediation, which is alternative dispute resolution deep into you can be litigating and you can do that deep into the conflict like okay we've got to go to court in two weeks let's get the lawyers and let's get this sorted that's not the kind of mediation that I do it's much more early dispute resolution it's within companies it's when you've got you know a, a high conflict manager who's creating um drama con fires with it everywhere they go and I think uh the timing now, because of the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, what what's happening is that there are so many things that have been open secrets in business that have just been really people just put up with it because that per, that that person that's make, doing all the damage is is someone that is making a lot of money and is someone that they're willing to look and look the other way for, and now that just it's. People don't want to do that anymore. It's not okay. People won't work for companies where that's happening. So there's a real push to try to surface issues early and uh, and 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 deal with them. Whereas before it used to be just like, oh yeah, no, we we're gonna do that. You know, we we definitely, oh yeah, go to HR, go talk to HR about that. Oh, we're very much about helping our employees. And now we people are like, no, we really actually do mean it. We do want to do that. <laughs> we want people to enjoy coming so, to work. So what is the biggest challenge you have as a mediator? When you have, let's just say, an employee, a manager, and an employee that you're trying to resolve a conflict, what is the big barriers to kind of getting through that and resolving an issue? Oh, <laughs> um, 
I think the biggest barrier is kind of what I was just saying is get, we're getting better at. And I think it's when they really don't care. They don't, they want to appear, they want to do lip service to a situation. They want to make it seem like they're making an effort to do things right, but really they don't, they're not motivated. You know, oh, we're going to do bias training, right? We're going to do bias training and we're going to, we're going to pay $500 and that's all we're willing to pay for one 30 minute bias training for the entire company. It's like, that's not going to do anything. <laughs> keep your 500 bucks. I've said that to people before. Honestly, keep that money because you'll do more damage just trying to look like you're doing something when you obviously don't want to. So I think that's just not have not really been motivated. And, um, and so how do you create is how do you go about creating a space where people can get through those conflicts and be more productive? Um, well, you have to have buy-in, buy-in from HR, um, buy-in from leadership to be given the opportunity to create that space. And then I think the other, the other key piece is that most people don't want to be horrible people. Most people aren't horrible people, right? And they just need to find the, a way to listen and hear each other and stay curious. And so to create that um create that motivation of hey we all just want to come to work do a good job and go home to our families right uh and 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 you resolving this just is going to make your life easier um i had one i had one client who who just did not believe in investing in their clients they just found it easy, just thought that was better to railroad. And then they realized that they actually got more done by making their employees happy and <laughs> completely changed their, their approach. And one of the things that you talk about is influence and how that can hurt, hurt or help a negotiation process. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, really all communication negotiation um, is about influence. It, and in a, not in a negative way either, it just in a way of what do I need to do so you will listen to what I'm saying and you will hear me, right? If, if, you can, if I can get you to listen to me, really hear what I'm saying and care, and if I can listen to you, really hear what you're saying, we will find a way through this because we are all human beings who you know, who want to live a good life. And if you can come back to that fundamental piece uh, and find that common ground to work together, I think you can get through it. It's just people don't realize how quickly they write other people off. You know, someone acts a certain way or someone looks a certain way or um, and just discount them. And so now they don't have influence anymore. You, and and yeah. And and one of I, one of the things that I learned, and I think it's important, is that it's not the some of the skills that you bring to conflict management and the negotiation the negotiation part of your job 
it doesn't just translate into the professional world. It also translates into your personal life. Can you talk about those similarities and why those uh, characteristics are good in both parts of your life? Uh, well, I, I, I think learning to listen is rate, you know, wildly underrated. And I think if you really listen to what somebody's needs are, uh, and understand their interests in a situation, you're able to come up with, with great outcomes. Um, and, and also I think one, I know one of the things that is key is that how our bodies operate when we feel in conflict or we feel unsafe, our bodies react in a way that is not conducive to having an intelligent conversation. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it, it, our bodies react so we can either fight, physically fight the person, run really fast away from them, or just hide. Uh, and none of those things actually work at home or in the workplace. So learning how to really stay present and stay out of your gut reactions and the the amygdala fight or flight all of that it just it just allows you to be more constructive with everything and what are the typical things you do when you want to like when you're looking at to resolve a conflict do you talk to one person and then get their insight do you do this together or do you do this separately it really depends on the situation. I think one of the most important things is the preparation. So yes, if that requires speaking to both people so you know exactly where they're coming from before you go in. Sometimes you have to be careful because you want to you need to remain neutral or and, and not only just that, you need to appear as if you've remained neutral. So you don't want to chat to one person too much and make them feel, you know, and make the other party feel like, oh, you're aligned. With, that, with them and I can't trust you. So uh, so sometimes, like for a mediation, sometimes it's easier on the day to be having those conversations. But I think for most, most um, conflict resolution, it is about really preparing the parties for the conversation. And how long do these negotiations typically go on? I know it's kind of case by case, but typically... In your kind of work, is this? Are you working with mostly like um, like divorced kind of proceedings or corporations or what specifically is your focus? Uh, so for for me, uh, depending on what I've been hired for, right? So if I'm I'm there to mediate uh, a disagreement, say um, it it can it can be three hours. Um, four hours if it is somebody that I'm working with because they're developing their skill set then it's more of a coaching relationship and then it's an hour once a week for however long until we feel like we're in a good place and then it might be sitting in and helping them like just facilitating a conversation that they need to have with somebody again that can be 30 minutes to an hour and what is coaching? We bring this up. Sometimes we forget that people may not know what coaching is. And do you think coaching is valuable? Oh, my God. Coaching is so valuable. People are funny. It, it, it's like not no professional athlete 
would not have a coach, right? And, and also the other thing that professional athletes, a lot of the time the coach isn't as good as the athlete, right? Being a great coach is a different skill set. And, um, and so in business, I think it's crazy. And in life, it's crazy that people don't have coaches. And I think sometimes uh, people think therapy, that they need therapy. But I think my experience, therapy is for really processing that stuff that made you who you are, the stuff that's getting in your way, really processing, right? And that takes time. And that is a totally different um, skill and process than coaching. Coaching is a lot more action-based, like you are looking at where you're at and you're working out where you want to be, and then you are creating a pathway to get there, and then working out how to get everything, what needs to get it, be got out of the way, out of the way, and creating accountability. Just really, um, yes. I mean, it, it's. I think it's relevant to think about. Everybody knows what a co- like a football coach is or a basketball coach. It's the same thing with coaching, and people. I know the word life coaching sounds. Ugh, but the, most of the time, I even no matter what area it is, it ends up being life coaching. Like you can't just coach a little piece of a person. You coach the whole person. And so um, you coach people because, yeah. yeah I, I was going to go into a big, long thing, <laughs> and I just decided I'd stop. <laughs> and I think, that, I think that goes a lot for a lot of people that I think some people that they may not have the opportunity to get a coach per se, um, but find a good mentor or, oh, somebody, yeah. or, or, or or creating associations and networking with people and relationships with people so that you can get some guidance, professional guidance or guidance in your personal life on, hey, you know what, I know you might have some experience in this area. What do you think? And just kind of, and it's all part of the growth process for sure. What would you say are characteristics of a good negotiator? Well, let's go back to listening. I, I mean, I, I think that being able to truly listen on all the different levels, what the what the issue is, of course, but then what each party's interests are, what their needs are, uh, what's going to motivate them. And we get hung up on distributive um fixed pie negotiations, right? If you get that, then I lose. Or if I get this, you don't get that. And to be able to really look at a situation and increase the value of it by understanding what each person's needs are, you can come away with um, so much more than when you, let's say you go in front of a judge and the judge says, this is yours and that's yours and off you go. Um, or if you don't have a conversation with that person and you don't know what they really need. So I think a really good negotiator is someone who is curious and is looking to create the most value out of a situation that both parties feel like they've won. Um, And I'm talking about integrative negotiation. I'm talking about when 
you and I are going to keep working together next week. So I can't set this. And we we just had this in class uh, last last session where you know one of the one of the students got up and was like, oh yeah, I won that one. Felt really pleased, and I was like, did you really win that one? Let's think about it. How? And then asking the other party, how do you feel? I hate him. I hate him. Okay, so this is your employee. This was the role we were playing, and this employee now hates you. Do you think he's gonna? She's gonna be doing a good job for you. Do you think she's gonna? You know. And and um, and so that was actually a loss. So I think realizing so much of our negotiations now are not about winning and losing. It's about everybody has to win. Otherwise, people um, disengage and don't want to be there, which is death to uh, output job. Well, now I get to uh, ask about a, a bunch of fun questions. You know, we have like about five minutes left. So I get to ask these wonderful, fun questions. I leave for the end. Um, if there's one person in your life that you would love to meet, who would it be and what would you say? Oh, God, it's such a great question and it's such a difficult question. There's so many people. Oh, you know what? I'll tell you what. I just looked over here. I'll tell you what. I want to meet this woman. She's getting uh, she's getting up, yes, to. Oh, yeah. No, you guys get, can't to get, see. To get a photo. So look at this. This is my great great grandmother she is half maori like she's a native new zealander look at her you guys yes. can't see it she is so strong i mean look what she's wearing so I just, just what, so what are you going to say to her I, well i just i would just love to understand the, the life i mean she was born in the bush literally in the bush this is when new zealand was I mean, there were warring Maori parties. I mean, she, her mother, her mother was the princess of their tribe and was taken from the tribe by an English settler. And she's one of the children of 21 children, my oh great, my great, gosh. great, great had. And I just, I look at this woman and she's so strong and she so looks so content in who she is. And I just want to understand that. Okay, so that's one person. The other one is my actual... I would love to see my grandma again. As, can oh, I ask for that? That's, yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that you know, you said sometimes you make people cry. This will make me cry. Um, my grandma died before I got married and had children, and she was uh, in my life. She was my one big. Um, she always believed in me, right? Even when it was hard, and and so I would just love for her to see that. I, I did okay, you know. I, well, I made... <laughs> you, you know one thing. I, I'm gonna let you plug. Um, if anybody wants to get in contact with you, but one thing I'm gonna say is one thing I've noticed throughout many of these podcasts is the role of grandmas, and it seems to be a theme mm. almost in every podcast I have. The importance of these strong female grandmothers in everyone's life and the meaning that they have in people's life is pretty amazing to me that it's 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 come it comes up in almost every podcast so um real quick mm -hmm. if somebody wants to get a hold of you and uh and and want to use your services what is the best way they can get a hold of you email helena at helenagotto.com and it's h-e-l-e-n-a-g-o-t-o and then helena. what kind of what kind of services do you offer uh, coaching, um, I facilitated conversations, consensus building. My favorite thing 
that I've that I do and that I would like to really do all the time <laughs> and be the only thing I do but is is really going into companies and speaking to people at all levels and then doing a trend base feedback analysis for leadership this is what's really happening on the ground of your company this is what they need this is what I recommend go forth and you know make everybody happy well Helena it's been so wonderful with you, uh, to spend time with you today I probably spent another hour with you at least I had a, a, a bunch of other stuff I wanted to go over and I just want to tell you, thank you so, so much. I love your stories. I love your life. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing amazing things in the community and um, love your energy. And thank you so much, Brian, our, the producer, Brian Garcia, for producing this. And catch us next week. Keep learning, everybody. And let's keep this moving forward. Thank you so much and have a great, great day.